In today's episode, we join Scott and Amanda Smoocher as they get ready for work. Scott, honey, what do you think? Should I go with the rainforest theme or the southwest pattern? Uh, I don't know. The red one. They both have red in them. Which one do you like better on me? I... I like them both. You look great in anything, sweetheart. Scott, I have to get ready for work. I need to know which one you like better. Well, actually, they both seem kind of loud. Don't you have something else you could wear? All I want to do is look good for you, and I can't even get a simple answer. It's like talking to a magic eight ball sometimes, I swear. Ah! I call this look stronger together. What's the matter? You don't like it, honey? Is it too late to vote for the other one? Now, last weekend, we kicked off a series called Built to Last, and I've gotten so much positive input from that. I know that many of you are very, very excited, as I am, about what God is going to do in this series. And we talked last weekend about building the, or choosing the right foundation and making sure that we have our relationships, particularly our marriage, built on the foundation of faith in Jesus Christ. Well, I want to continue in this series today by talking about actually desiring God more than you desire your spouse. Learning to delight in God more than you delight in your mate, okay? And we're gonna be looking at Genesis 29. So if you have a Bible of your own and would like to open it there, that's where we'll be going. And we'll be starting a bit later, I think in about verse 16, but just open it up to Genesis chapter Uh, 29. And uh, I'm going to be reading a a good chunk of this passage today, but just a little background here. Jacob, we're going to study the love story between Jacob and Rachel. Now, Jacob was the grandson of Abraham. And uh, as we kind of get into this story here, he is in an interesting place in life. He has lied to his father, he has cheated his brother, and so he doesn't want to hang out at home very much right now. Things aren't good there for him, and so he has gone away to his uncle Laban's place, and there, as he's working for his uncle, he falls in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel. Now again, we're going to be looking at a good portion of this, but You know, it it just seems to me that there are some real highlights in this story that we want to kind of underline and make them more memorable. So I got to thinking that maybe you could help remember this better. We could all kind of appreciate it better if I got a little audience participation, all right? Think you can do that? Yeah, I I believe you can, okay? So... I'm going to need some sound effects to go with this, all right? So there'll be one for the men, one for the women, and then one sound effect that all of us will do together. You're going to get into this, I know. Okay, first of all, for the guys, this is for the men only. When I, and I'm going to cue you on all these. I'm going to point at you like this, and when I point at you with both hands, that's your cue to do the sound effect, okay? Okay. 
Guys, do you know what I mean when I say the attractive whistle? You ever done this? The attractive whistle? You know that whistle? Some of you have probably done this, yeah, a lot. So we're going to do this together, men, just, just the men. We're going to try this on the count of three. Here we go, men. One, two, three. Oh, that's so good. You guys sound awesome. I can't believe it. All right, I can see some of you have been practicing. Uh, let's try that again on the count of three, just the men. One, two, three. Oh, excellent. You're going to do wonderful when it comes your time. Now, ladies, here is your sound effect. Ladies, you know that sound. It's kind of an awing sound, kind of an awing sound that, that you make. It, it, I tried it this week. I tried to practice it, but I'll tell you, it doesn't feel very masculine when I do this. So I'm really a little bit uncomfortable with this one. But you know that sound you make when you see something that is just so cute or it is just, oh, it is just so adorable. And you know how you go, ah, you know that sound, that sound? Do you think you can do that, ladies, on the count of three? Try it. Out loud, outdo the men, all right? They did a great job. But I want you to do this, this ah sound, okay? Do your very best. Here we go, ladies. One, two, three. Aww. Oh, so good. So good. Excellent. Now, finally, there's a third sound effect that we're all going to do together. This is the sound that you make when you see something that's just gross or just frankly disgusting. You just kind of go, ugh, like that. You think you can do that, men and women, on the count of three? One, two, three. Ugh, yeah, very good, very good, all right. Now, you be ready when your time comes, and I'm going to cue you. Now, men, you need to get your whistle ready because uh, yours is going to be coming up real quickly. We read in Genesis 29, verse 16, Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Now, men, be ready here. I'm about to cue you. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. You got it. Oh, that was so good. Let's practice that one more time. Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Magnifico. People had complimented her all her life. She had heard that whistle or whatever the ancient Hebrew equivalent was, was of that all of her life. Now, the Bible seldom makes comments about a person's physical appearance. And so when it makes this comment about Rachel, it means, quite frankly, that she was a total knockout. She was stunning, stunningly beautiful. Uh, and it says about her older sister, Leah, uh, that she has nice eyes, or the text literally says weak eyes. I, I think it's being gracious. I think it's supposed to be a compliment, uh, the word here can mean delicate eyes, but guys, let's face it, if you go on a blind date, you know, your buddy sets you up on a blind date, and, and you say to your buddy, well, well what, what, what does she look like? And he kind of hems and haws and goes, well, she's got nice eyes. You, you know that's a red flag, right? You know that that's a problem right there, Okay. So you've got this comparison here going between these two sisters. Rachel is wanted, 
She is very attractive. And then you've got Leah who has kind of nice eyes. She's the older sister. And here's what we read in verse 18. It says, Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Boy, do you sense the extravagance there? I mean, this guy is just bonkers in love with Rachel. He is so infatuated. I'll do anything you want. For seven years, I'll work for you if I can just have your daughter's hand in marriage. That's what he's saying here to Laban. And Laban agrees. Now, ladies, you be ready for your sound effect in just a moment. Because I believe that verse 20 is one of the sweetest, most romantic verses in all the Bible. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seem like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Ladies, isn't that great? Isn't that great? I mean, isn't that wonderful? Seven years only seems like a few days? Really? Really? See, that's that kind of irrational side of love that captures this strong desire that Jacob had for Rachel. He worked seven years, but it only seemed like a few days. That is so romantic. This guy is utterly smitten. And verse 21 goes on, Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed. I want to lie with her. Not quite as romantic there. You know what I mean? He started off really sweet and sensitive, and then quickly it kind of goes downhill. But seven years is a long time to be engaged, so we can't be too hard on this guy. And then in verse 22 and following is where the story kind of takes a real twist. And if you're new to this story in the Bible, I just want to warn you, uh, this, this really has an unexpected turn here in the story. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah. Okay, now be ready, everyone, with that sound effect that we're all going to make together. All right, in just a moment, I'll cue you. See, Laban here tricks Jacob. And Jacob thinks he's marrying Rachel, but you know it's dark, there's no electricity, Jacob has probably had a few too many, Leah is heavily veiled as she walks into the bridal chamber, so he takes his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her, all right, everybody, ugh, right? What? It's just, it kind of all goes wrong in this moment. And then we read down in verse 25 this really interesting description of how Jacob felt. When morning came, there was Leah. Like, right, he, it's bright, and he rubs his eyes, and, and w w wait a minute. I thought I was marrying Rachel. He ends up marrying Leah. And so Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? And he works for another seven years to marry Rachel. It just becomes this whole mess. I hope you'll read every verse of the story when you go home. But I want to talk today about that morning when Jacob wakes up and realizes he's not married to the person he thought he had married. 
Because eventually that happens to all of us. Okay? Now, some of you are going, well, pastor, this is one twisted story. I mean, I I don't think that would ever happen to me. And I I get it. I get it. Literally, that's not going to happen to you. But realistically, every husband and wife will feel this way at some point. They'll wake up, and there's Leah. They'll wake up and realize that they're not married to the person they thought they were married. Marrying. They they married someone different than who they agreed to marry. So the question today is, what do you do in those moments when you feel like the person you married is not the person you thought you were marrying? Now, to walk us through this and how this usually works in a typical marriage, I'm going to be putting some words up here, and in your notes is, are some blanks, and so you can just start there in a moment, just writing these words in, starting at the top with that first blank and just going right down. There's going to be five words. You might call this a, a desire diagram, and, and what I want to challenge all of us with is to ask yourself in your relationship, where are we right now? Where are we on the desire diagram? And Over the next few weeks, we're going to be unpacking some of this in the messages that are coming up, okay? So the first word we want to put up here, uh, right at the top, is the word desire. That's really where it all begins. You could define desire as a strong feeling of wanting something or wishing for something to happen. And we've kind of been culturally discipled in our culture to understand and think of romantic love this way. It's this strong feeling of wanting. I just want to say to you that that desire is worth celebrating. It's actually a God-given thing. It's a gift from God physiologically and emotionally that we have this desire for another person, this strong sense of wanting. And boy, I tell you, when you first find yourself with that feeling, it can catch you off guard. And you find yourself just crazy about someone and doing irrational things. You may talk on the phone for hours, and you have trouble saying goodbye. So you say, you hang up. He says, no, you hang up. No, you hang up. No, no, you hang up. And you just kind of act goofy. And you do things that you normally wouldn't do. I remember when I was dating Debbie, and she was living with her parents over northwest of Syracuse. And I was so smitten by this girl. And I would go over there and spend the weekend with her and her family. And, and, and I would wait until the very last moment when I just had to get home. It would often be after midnight, after a really busy, kind of tiring weekend. But I was so smitten, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. And I would leave after midnight, and Lord only knows how I drove back to Albany, where I was living, okay, uh, and get a couple hours sleep and go to work the next morning. But you you don't care because you're in love. And it's just kind of this irrational thing. I heard of one married guy who for his anniversary, his wife gave him a card. And on the front of the card, it said, I love you so much. And he opened the card, I may even shave my legs. Now, (laughs) 
Now that's extravagant love for you right there. You just do these crazy things. So let's be clear, romantic love should be marked by desire. And if you doubt that, just read the Song of Solomon in your Bible. It shows this relationship between a husband and a wife and the delight they have in each other. Chapter one, verse two says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is more delightful than wine. There's this strong feeling of wanting there. Now, those of you who are married, I wanna say to you, God wants you to be more in your marriage than just business partners. He wants you to do more than just have business meetings in the home and take care of business and make sure the kids are taken care of and the bills are paid and plans are made. He has passion in mind. He wants there to be a strong desire, a mutual desiring of one another. And we're going to be talking about that again over the next few weeks. And I love the place in Song of Solomon. It's the only place where God actually speaks in that book, chapter 5, verse 1. It's after this husband and wife make love, and God doesn't say, what are you thinking? After they make love, God doesn't say, you should be ashamed of yourself. What are you doing? Oh. God responds, eat, O friends, and drink your fill, O lovers. In, in other words, God celebrates because this is his idea. It's his gift to the married couple. So there's this desire at the beginning of this romantic relationship, but after desire comes, and spoiler alert here, spoiler alert for all of you who may be planning to get married, <clears throat> because after desire comes disappointment. <laughs> it's really true. When those desires aren't satisfied, inevitably disappointment shows up. Oh, you love the person, but after a while you begin to notice these little things about them that need to be adjusted, that need to be fixed, that need to be changed. Oh, when you were dating, they were kind of cute. Those little idiosyncrasies, those little habits, you kind of snickered at them. It kind of endeared you, but now it's driving you up the wall. And you're so disappointed, and the main source of this disappointment is unmet expectations. Some of them were spoken, talked about, but many of those expectations that are not getting met were never even voiced. And so in many cases, your spouse doesn't even know it's an expectation, and so inevitably, you have come to a point of disappointment in your marriage. Still in love, still committed, but you're, you're disappointed. I mentioned last week Gary Thomas's book, Sacred Marriage. In that same book, he talks about the disappointment that inevitably comes to every couple in their marriage. And he uses the image of an hourglass to talk to young couples about the disappointment that they can expect. He calls it the infatuation hourglass. He says, and I quote, the moment you become smitten by someone, the second you find yourself deeply in love is the moment that hourglass gets turned over. There's enough sand in that infatuation hourglass on average to last about 12 to 18 months. On occasion, the sand may trickle down a bit beyond that, up to about two years, but never by much and not with the same intensity. 
So this is a part of the relationship process. And so the big question for us is, what do we do when the sand runs out of the infatuation hourglass? And we find ourselves married to a person we didn't think we were marrying. We find ourselves disappointed. How do we respond then? I'll tell you what most people do at that point. They start blaming their spouse. They say things like, look, if you would just provide a little better for us, I wouldn't feel like this. Look, if you would just be a little more responsive in the bedroom. Look, if if you would just spend a little bit more more time at home, if you'd just be a little bit more romantic, if you'd just show a little more interest in sex, if you'd just not be quite so enamored with pleasing your parents, and, and we just start pointing out all these things and we start blaming our spouse. It is not your job to change your spouse. That was worth the trip to church right there for some of you. Let me say that again, <laughs> just for good measure. Make sure you heard that. It is not your job to change your spouse. It's really not. That's God's work. And what you'll find, the harder you work at trying to change your spouse, the more difficult it's going to become. What if, what if, all the blame game we play, what if it's not really all on our spouse? What if, if, just a thought, what if a part of our intense disappointment in marriage is because our expectations were just a little unfair, maybe a little unrealistic, or maybe unspoken, so our our spouse never had a time to even know and, and respond to that. What if? But inevitably, every couple will reach a place of disappointment. So there's desire, there's disappointment, and then probably, this is where a lot of you are today, would be my guess, and, and, and that is discouragement. Discouragement. I don't really know of any, I, I think I can say that unequivocally, I don't know of any marriages that don't eventually hit a place of discouragement. And here's where you begin to feel, you know, this isn't the way our story was supposed to be. I, I thought it was going to be different for us. I, I thought I was going to feel differently than this. And you, you honestly start to get discouraged and, and you start having these thoughts. Wow, am I facing a future here married to a person who doesn't even seem to desire me that much and doesn't even seem to be very delighted in me? Am I facing a future here, you know, to a spouse? I mean, we can be friends and we can kind of be business partners in this thing, but but I was really signing up for far more than that. And, And discouragement is honestly the way you feel. Well, that's the position that Leah was in, in our text today. She desires her husband, Jacob, and she desperately longs to be desired by him, but it's just not there. It just isn't happening. He's not reciprocating that that real desire that she has for him. I want you to think for a moment, by the way, how painful Leah's life must have been. She's 
always been compared to her beautiful sister. Oh, she doesn't, she doesn't match up. She, she's not that good looking. She has these delicate eyes. And uh, her, her, her father, for goodness sake, has to trick a guy into marrying her just to marry her off. I mean, imagine how painful that would be. And, and then you've got Jacob who never chose her and never wanted to be with her in the first place. And more than anything else, she just wants to be wanted. Her desire is to be desired, and it just isn't happening. And so for a while, it, it seems that she makes her life goal, in fact, to be desired by her husband. We read in verse 32, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Thought, oh, God knows what I'm going through. He, he knows how my husband doesn't really desire me. He knows how I want more than anything else to be desired, but I'm not desired. He sees my misery. And then she says, surely my husband will love me now. Surely he's going to want me now. I mean, I've given him a beautiful son here. And then verse 33, she conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. God knew that God knows my marriage isn't what I wanted it to be, after all. He, he, he knows these feelings I've got. He knows how brokenhearted I am. Maybe this child will be enough to, to satisfy these longings in my heart because I'm sure not getting it from my husband. But there's still within her this desire that just longs to be longed for. Verse 34, again she conceived. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me. Because I've borne him three sons? I mean, my goodness, haven't I done enough already? What more am I supposed to do? Does he not pay attention to the efforts I'm making here? Maybe now it'll be enough. Maybe now he'll turn toward me. Maybe now I'll get what I really deserve in my marriage. And so here's what happens. After enough time of living in this place of discouragement, I've noticed, I've noticed that one of two things usually occur. With women, they usually, when they've lived here for years and years, just discouraged, they usually become disinterested. And at one time, they really cared a lot about the marriage. They really wanted it to get better and so on. They really wanted to work at things, but they just become disinterested at this point and just whatever. They tried and it didn't work. I guess it's just my lot in life. And, and, and I noticed that a lot of men at this point of discouragement, they become disengaged from the marriage. Uh, and then maybe they find out, well, at work I'm wanted. At work I'm really appreciated and desired. And so the man now pours more time than ever in his job in many cases. Or maybe into a hobby. I've known some guys who, who love to fish, for instance, and, and they'd have a bass boat or whatever, and, and they would spend so many hours just babying that boat and just fishing and just getting ready to go fishing and cleaning up after a fishing trip. And, and, and I actually said to a buddy once, look, man, if you spent a fraction of the time on your marriage as you spent on your hobby, your marriage would be fantastic. But see, women get disinterested, men get disengaged from it all, and, and they all live apathetically ever after. It's sort of how the story goes. 
So after living in discouragement for a while, many couples then go, they sink down, and you can see the downward trajectory here. They sink down to another level, which we could call despair. Despair. We've been made to desire and be desired. So for a while, you can kind of be disinterested or you can disengage, but, but here's what happens. When a couple gets kind of down to this level and they're really in despair, uh, you may have a, a husband, for instance, who's been married for years and suddenly he'll become addicted to pornography. Because at least with that, he can kind of pretend that he's desired. And you'll have a woman who's been married for years, but she's gone to this level of despair, and she'll pick up maybe 50 shades of gray and begin to read it. And she'll say, well, at least this story's kind of interesting, because Lord knows my story isn't interesting. And maybe she'll go on Facebook and, and kind of reconnect with an old boyfriend. But see, the, the, the problem here is the relationship now has become very vulnerable. Because there's no longer work go, going on, and... I, I actually talked to couples who are kind of, they've been discouraged for a long time. They've, they've kind of drifted now into despair. And I'll say, well, what's your game plan? Well, we're just going to stick it out. Now, don't get me wrong. I admire the commitment in that statement. But sometimes, sometimes I just want to shake them a little and go, stick it out? Is that your romantic game plan for the rest of your life? Just to stick it out? Don't. Don't you believe God has a little more in mind than just sticking it out for the rest of your life? God has so much more for us than that. And then after we've lived in despair long enough, it, it actually can go to a, an even lower level, and that is, finally, where we literally can begin to despise our mate. We literally begin to despise this person. We have contempt for them now. And even disgust. It has gone so low. Your resentment is so deep. You literally despise your spouse. You feel like they trapped you. You feel like they did a bait and switch on you. And you've been robbed. You got a raw deal. Now, here you have it. The desire diagram. And my theory is that everybody listening to me right now is somewhere on this diagram, somewhere. Or you may be living between, kind of between some of these, which is often the case. So what I want to do now is turn a corner here, and for the few minutes that we have left, I want to kind of unpack this a little bit and give you a little homework, depending on where you are on this desire diagram. Because I've learned that Particularly, if you're looking to God as your source, there is always hope for your relationship. So here's my first little bit of advice, my homework, my challenge to you. If you're living somewhere between desire and disappointment, if you're somewhere in there uh, and, and you're beginning to kind of get fill this gap with negativity and with nagging and maybe with some anger, uh, and and uh, maybe even the silent treatment because you're beginning to feel disappointed. And uh, I would encourage you to give grace instead. There's my first assignment. If that's where you are, you may want to write that down. Learn to be a grace giver. 
Now, by the way, Christ followers ought to be the, the best at this because we've been the recipients of God's amazing grace. We know what it's like to be forgiven. We know what it's like to not measure up, not be perfect, which none of us are, and yet God gives grace to us. We need to model that to our spouse. Be a grace giver. Learn to fill that gap with grace. Overlook faults. Have conversations about things that are significant, but learn in it all to fill that space with grace. Secondly, if you find yourself today, if you do a little diagnosis of your relationship and find that you're probably living somewhere between disappointment and discouragement, here's my challenge to you. This is my assignment, my homework. I would encourage you to be thankful. Now, I know that blows your mind. You go, dude, what do you mean be thankful? I'm, I'm, I'm living here, man. I'm discouraged. I don't know what to do. I don't want to go down to despair. I don't want to get way down here one day, and I hope you never do. But I've found, and I've, I've tried this with many, many couples through the years. When a couple is kind of living right here between disappointment and discouragement, listen, it's time to start thinking about what you can be thankful for in this relationship. Because if you're not careful, here's what you're going to do. You're going to pigeonhole your spouse if you get a certain mindset here, and they can do, do, do nothing right. Even if they start improving, you've already pigeonholed them. You've already labeled them as this, and it's going to be hard for him or her to overcome it. So I would encourage you to be thankful. Think about four or five things. They may not be huge, significant things, but think about four or five things that you can be thankful for. Hey, listen, if it's really bad, you may even have to go back in the past a little bit to think of something you're thankful for, but write it down, and I would encourage you to voice it to your spouse. You'd be amazed how cultivating thankfulness in a marriage relationship, I, I tell Debbie regularly, she tells me regularly how thankful I am for her. And I tell her specific things that I'm so grateful for. And I'll tell you, it helps keep our relationship fresh and keeps us endeared to one another. Now, what if you're living down here? And I believe that there are relationships here that are right here. And, and sadly, some of you have been here for years. You're between discouragement and despair. You've disengaged. You're disinterested. Here, here's the danger zone for people right here. You're really in danger of just quitting on your marriage. That, that's true. You're really in danger of, usually by the time people get down here to despising, they've already quit. Or it's already in process. But when you're right here, your temptation is just to quit. You, you just despair and think, it's never going to change. It's never going to be any better. I can't go on. Uh, my encouragement to you is don't quit. You would be amazed how many couples, I know I can point to some in our church today who are happily married who once were living in this space right here. But they didn't quit. And here, see here's the thing. At the time when you most feel like quitting is the time you most need to fight for your marriage. At the very time when you're so discouraged and despairing, you're ready to quit is the time you most need to fight for your marriage. And finally, I would say to you that if you're living in this space down here between despair and despising, 
That's a lonely place to be. But I would encourage you to put your hope in God. You see, one of the reasons, one of the reasons that we have these disappointing experiences and go down this diagram is that we were actually putting our hope in the wrong person to begin with. And it may have been that we were expecting something of our spouse that God alone can give us. I would encourage you to put your hope in God. By the way, as we wrap up, that's what Leah ultimately does. She's tried to win her husband's heart. It doesn't work. She gives birth to three sons. He still isn't drawn to her. He's not interested. And she gives birth to a fourth son, verse 35. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Judah is the Hebrew word for praise. By the way, Jesus is called in the Bible the Lion of Judah. And guess who was the forebearer, the forerunner? Guess who one of the forebears of the Messiah was? Judah. He came through the line of Judah. This guy right here. Think about that. God was at the work in the midst of this horrible relationship. It wasn't what Leah expected. It wasn't what she wanted. But ultimately, she finds her desires met not in her husband, but in God. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And that, my friends, is my prayer for you this week. That God would so stoke up your love in your marriage relationship. That, yeah, you would love your spouse, but that you would love God even more. Because I want to tell you something. If you delight in your husband, as wonderful as he may be, he's only going to let you down. If you decide, you know what, I'm going to delight in my wife as wonderful as she may be, sir, I'll guarantee you she's eventually going to let you down. But when you delight yourself in the Lord, you're never disappointed. So here's what I'm saying. When you give God the desires of your heart, Guess what? He gives you the desires of your heart. That's what the Lord does when we delight in him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this incredible story of a woman who was undesired, unloved, unlonged for, and she desperately desired to be wanted. I thank you, Lord, for the amazing reality that she found her satisfaction in you. She realized that her expectations were all wrong in the first place. And she had spent so many years trying to feel the satisfaction of her husband, his approval. She ultimately found that in you alone was what she was looking for. And that set her free. May every married couple in this place find that reality. No matter how healthy the marriage may be, I pray, oh God, that the very heart of it would be a passionate love for you that transcends it all. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Will the ushers please come forward as we receive our tithes and offerings?